Pastor Billy did such a good job. Actually, I forgot to label something here. That So on this diagram, I'm going to add, this is a picture of the age to come. So as we look at this diagram, it's the age to come that has broken into the present evil age, which has a termination point. The age to come does not. So just to clarify that, and so we can talk about the already not yet of the kingdom in, in the sense that it's, it's arrived, but there's aspects of it that are yet to be fulfilled. So when we come to biblical prophecy, those are the categories that we're more or less thinking about. So um, what we want to do, yes, go ahead. anything that will um, show all of them compared instead of like one slide of you know um, so know. it's a little easier to <clears throat> yeah um, I made something like that okay if you want yeah um, see I thought I made something like that about 10 or 11 years ago and I couldn't find it so I need to keep looking for it. Steve had a suggestion about making a uh, kind of a, gra a graph of um, maybe like the four views in the top row as column, four columns. And then on, on, the, on the side, you would say, you know, Israel, rapture, tribulation, millennium. And then in each box, you, you say what they believe, uh, proponents, key books, history, you know, and just kind of have a, a one page reference sheet. So you could be like, well, how does this position answer this question? And then you find it, and it, there's a... I'm going to get on that. <laughs> so, uh, and Kim, would you mind bringing my Bible and iPad, please? I just forgot to grab that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, so the thing is, the reason we're doing this now in May, and we're only in Revelation chapter 11, is because there's still a lot more to come. And so, you know, this conversation isn't ending today by any means. So I do think it, it could serve us more broadly to have something like that as we move into some of the tougher chapters. So that's a, that's a good suggestion. And I thought I did have a one-sheet summary, but I couldn't find it. Okay. Let's, um, let's start with a few questions. Uh, why don't we start with a few questions from the live stream? Um, and then as we answer those, you know, be thinking of the ones you have. And so just right now, that's what this time is, is uh, what remaining questions do you have that you want to ask and what things do you want to look at? Obviously, last night and this morning, we're doing a, a, a flyover, and there's a lot that we can drop into if, if we want to, but I'm going to let you all decide what that is. And, uh, and just, you know, I'm not an expert in this stuff, so... You know, there might be times where I'm like, don't know, that's a tough one, next question. So don't uh, take that offensively. I just, there's a lot of complicated things. I appreciate so. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot, no doubt. Okay, Eric. All right, first question is from Casey Miller. Uh, I'm hung up on Satan being bound now. So does Satan have less power than God allowed him in Job? Since that was before Christ's first coming, is the state of the world now attributed more to our fallen nature as opposed to Satan's attacks? 
I suppose you can hear some of my old teachings coming out here, LOL. <laughs> Those are very good questions. So let's try and take them in turn. So if you can help me, Eric, make sure that I answer each of those. Um, and I had a discussion last night with, uh, was it Tom we talked about Job? Was that, I was talking with, yeah. So that, that came up last night. So that is a good question um, that other people have had. So in what sense is Satan bound? I think that's the category we're talking about. In what sense is Satan bound? Um, so let me just address Job initially. Um, as we read Job, you know, we're, we're wondering how do we interpret Bible stories and, and what is their place in the unfolding revelation of God across the storyline of the Bible? What, what function does Job have in, in the unfolding storyline of the Bible? Now, even as I present that question, what I'm doing and what I'm assuming is exactly what Pastor Billy just gave us which is a particular way to read the Bible and to see how the Bible holds together. And this way is called a re the redemptive historical method of doing Bible study, of reading the Bible in terms of seeing the history of redemption as, a, as progressive unfolding of the plan of God over time. That's not how everybody reads the Bible. So a dispensationalist would have a, like a grammatical historical method of doing biblical interpretation, which um, seeks to find a lot of literal uh, interpretations of, of passages. So it's a different, different, different way of viewing things. So we come at the story of Job from that redemptive historical starting point, that this story plays a part in redemptive history to make a particular point. So what is that point? Um, and, and that is, in Job, is God meaning to give us kind of a framework for how he's going to deal with Satan and the church in the future age? Or is this story a picture of God's sovereignty over Satan and over evil in order to accomplish his purposes in his people? And um, I, think a grammatic, I think a redemptive historical approach would see it as the second, that um, we, we can't look at the story of one man's dealings and interactions with God and Satan as a paradigm for uh, the, es the eschaton, the, what the end is going to look like. Um, I think that would be asking the story of Job to bear more weight than it's intended to bear. Um, that, that God's point in that story, in that whole book, is different than um, to give us a well-rounded eschatology that fits into a particular timeline. Um, a grammatical historical approach would probably see it that way. But a redemptive historical approach, not so much. And we feel that the redemptive historical approach is the best method to interpret the Bible. Um, so now, Tom, I felt like last night when we talked about it, I may have said it a little more clearly. So do you have anything to add there? Or did that make sense? God allowed him, so God still had the sovereignty yeah. over, over the enemy. Right, and, and so it's a picture of Satan, of the limitations that uh, God gives to Satan. In other words, sure, he's allowed to do stuff, but only as he's only allowed to go as far as God allows him to go. So I think the way Tom presented the question was, does that mean that Satan was bound in the Old Testament? Which is, that's a pointed question too, because if he's bound in the Old Testament, then 
then in which sense does he suddenly be bound in the millennial age? But I don't think Job serves as an example of Satan being bound categorically to prevent him from deceiving the nation so that the gospel can go forth. At that stage of redemptive history, that's, that's just way too much. Um, so Job, many scholars believe, was written very early, one of the earliest books of the Bible. Um, so I don't think that it's, it's that. So, uh, yeah, Jan? Job just happens to be in the reading plan I'm reading right now. Mm -hmm. So the thought that the idea of, of uh, Satan being unbound or let, I keep thinking about the leash illustration right. in stages and phases, right. I think is certainly true in Job, right? True. He let him touch this and then he let him touch that and then he let him touch you know. And then I think it fits very well into the, or maybe uh, our theology fits into the, <laughs> the idea of God having rule and reign over Satan. He is right. sovereign, period. Right. And then also, Job, I just think it's God's going to do what God's going to do because <laughs> yeah. he's God and we are not. And that kind of helps me with everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good point, too. Yep, and um, I want to show you something on, along those lines, and I think this will get to the second part of that question, is uh, if you want to look with me in First John, Let's look at 1 John, verse 19, I believe. Yep. 1 John 19. Um, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So a pre-mill person is saying, clincher, right there. The, verse 19, 1 John 5, 19. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So how can you Amil people say that Satan is bound? I mean, John clearly states the whole world still lies under the power of the evil one. You know, we referenced, uh, so that's John. We referenced Paul, uh, the God of this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So how can he be bound? The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Well, Excuse me. I think the answer, um, again, re remembering even in even Revelation 20, it's not unrestricted, unqualified binding. Um, it's bound in a certain de degree, in a certain sense, in a certain sphere. And actually, verse 18 gives that to us. So look right before it. We know that everyone's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. So Jesus protects the ones born of God. And the evil one does not touch him. So there is an example of how is Satan bound? The evil one can't touch believers. And how is he still wreaking havoc in the world? Because the whole lot, world lies under the power of the evil one. So they're both there. You know, so the, I don't think John is contradicting himself. But he's making a distinction between the effect of the binding of Satan. What restriction does that have? Well, it's a restriction on the gospel's ability to save, and protect, and keep, and preserve, and expand the church in the world. It's that restriction. But his power is still, the, the whole world still lies under the power of the evil one. That's still true. The world does. But it's not going to stop God from saving people. And Jesus, so, so Jesus can say, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How can he ensure that if Satan is not bound? And he can do what he wants. 
And Jesus, can only, best he can do is only hope that Satan won't stand against it. But Jesus guarantees the gates of hell will not prevail. They'll try. So we, we live in a world opposition, but ultimately he will build his church. The gates of hell won't prevail. Um, so Eric, I'm trying to remember the second par- part of that question. Did that, do you think that that addressed that? I think so. She just had given a follow-up. I agree with that so far, but the idea of God allowing him that power, I think you've kind of addressed that. Um, is the, the, God allowing him that power is the, the tough part? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to understand what, what the question is there. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? What... what um, what she might be getting at. What do you think? Yes, ma'am. Um, what I was getting at, what you, you just, the mic what you just said there was that uh, from John is that um, the evil one was not necessarily bound uh, for the people that were not Christian, but there was a binding of him against the Christians. And it seems like when Christ came, then he was bound to not be able to touch the Christians and, and bring them away from, from God. But he, he, was, he, he was let loose on the ones that were not by what you read from John. I think that's correct, yeah. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, yep. So, um, and then I guess, so the question of God allowing that um, even his allowance of that is a reflection of his sovereignty. And, you know, we might wonder, well, if God has full control over Satan, um, why does he allow any bad or evil to happen at all in the world? Which that gets to a much bigger philosophical and biblical question um, of God's intended re- redemptive purposes in the world and um, his desire to make... Uh, to display both justice and mercy at the same time requires the presence of sin. Um, Otherwise, there is no grace, there is no forgiveness, so sin had to exist so that that could be put on display, but not as though God wanted or willed that to exist, but decreed that it would exist without being responsible for it, but ordaining its existence that his grace and mercy might be shown, grace and mercy being bound up in the very intrinsic character of God himself as something that he necessarily wanted to display, um, which requires the presence of sin. So God allows the presence of sin and, um, and works through that to put his both justice on display against sin and his mercy uh, towards sinners um, on display as well. So that's a fairly short answer to that very deep, big theological question. But yeah, just... Yeah, so... Something that really made sense to me that I don't think I ever seen in Genesis 3, going back to Revelation 20, talking about how Satan has been bound for a thousand years, um, and, and what we're talking about, how, how God is sovereign over all of creation, and how the enemy only has, he has restricted power, because God is allowing that, and what Billy was saying, go home tonight, read uh, Genesis 1, 2, 3, then go to Revelation 1, 2, 3 and read that. I'm going to do that. But then 
I get to Genesis 3.15, and it says, I will put a hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her, her offspring, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And in a sense, for me, when I read that verse, I see right there the binding of Satan in the sense that what's promised right there is the coming Messiah. And that when he would curses every man that hangeth on a tree, when he would hang on the cross, he would ultimately have the victory over sin and death. In essence, it's Jesus putting his foot, putting his heel on his head and saying, you are now bound. Mm -hmm. And those who believe the gospel, you can't touch them any longer. Um, and so, so in a sense that what I'm seeing in, in Genesis 3.15 is, is, is I see of um, a pattern for the binding of Satan for good, yeah, for 1,000 years. That's a, so the very last thing you said there is, is key that, um, you know, you made a distinction between is, is Genesis 3 the actual point at which Satan is bound or is that a pattern for a binding that's coming? And I think it's, I think it's pattern. It's emblematic of something to come. And, um, and so as we think about already and not yet, is Satan bound in Genesis chapter three? Well, we don't see that. We see God is sovereign over Satan and in his sovereignty, he has determined a plan to bring all things under subjection to Christ through the church, through the cross. Um, but it's, it's only there in seed form in Genesis 3. It's a, it's a pattern of things to come. It's a template. It's a roadmap. This is where it's going. But it's not arrived there yet until the coming of Christ. And so much of Christ's teaching is him proving that the fullness of the ages has arrived on the scene in the person of Christ. The kingdom of God has arrived. You know, so much of it is everything the Old Testament was pointing to has arrived here in Jesus. And then when we went through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is making the point. Everything the Old Testament pointed to has arrived in Jesus. He's the new and true and better Adam and true and better Israel and true and better prophet, priest, and king. And it, it all culminates in, in Christ, but, I, but it's there in seed form, in prophetic form, in pattern form in Genesis 3. Yeah. Yeah, good. Very good. Okay. Yes, Eric. This is uh, actually another question from Delane. Uh, says in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 24 through 26, where in the timeline does the Amil position put this world where Christ has been reigning and has put all rule, all authority, and even all his enemies under his feet? Yep, good. So let's look at that. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll start in verse 23. Good question, Delane. But each in his own order. Well, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So let me pull this up. Yep. Um, so looking at our analogy here, um, Christ, when it says Christ is the first fruits, in other words, Christ is the first one to be resurrected bodily um, and to be given a new resurrected glorified body that exists 
into eternity future. That has never happened to anybody else. Yeah, Elijah ra raised the widow's son from the dead, but he eventually died. Yeah, Lazarus came back, he eventually died. Christ is the first one. And the New Testament teaches that the pattern of Christ's resurrection is a picture of where, where we're all headed. That, that, that's, a, that's a sample. It's a template for us, what's going to happen to us. The same way Jesus was raised, we will be raised. So when it says first fruits, that's the idea there. Um, so Christ is the first fruits. Then at his coming, so when, when, he, when we see at his coming, we have to ask, is that the first coming? Is that the second coming? Is that a secret coming somewhere in between? Biblically speaking, what's the most likely? Um, again, we've already said that there doesn't seem to be a lot of biblical support for a secret coming in between the first and second. Um, but because Christ already has been raised and he's talking about then when he comes, you know, it's, it's got, the only other option is it's his second coming that it's referring to. So um, then, where are we at? Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ... Then comes the end. So Christ comes back. Um, everyone that belongs to Christ is raised, given glorified bodies. Then comes the end. Then, notice it, it, that would have been a great time to say, then comes the beginning of a thousand year millennium. And then comes the end. But this all happens, the end comes. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When is he going to put all his enemies under his feet? Well, going, looking at the verse right before that, it would have to be when the end comes and he delivers the kingdom of God to the, to the Father uh, after destroying every rule and authority and power. So up until that point, he's reigning, his enemies are there, and he's going to reign until every last one of them gets put under his feet at the second coming and the kingdom is handed over to God the Father. And the last enemy that's destroyed is death. Why? Because God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Um, so I think in, in, you know, that, that is a, a good text to just kind of unpack the, the Amil framework of eschatology because it just doesn't allow for a whole lot of uh, in-between and uh, alternate sequences of events. It's just like... Satan is, is ruling and reigning, and then it all comes to an end, and Jesus comes back, and the new heavens and new earth are established, and it's just clean and single event kind of thing. So um, did that answer the question that he asked? Okay. Good. One more? Well, or? He was just asking where are we, where is this world at? Okay, yep. So Jesus is reigning in heaven. Um, all his enemies are not yet under his feet. They're still contesting his rule. But one day they will be eliminated. They will be crushed. They will be thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan. It will all come to an end. So his rule is, his rule is certainly absolute and unrestricted. Jesus' rule is absolute and unrestricted. Um, but it's not uncontested. So the enemy still fights back against the church, fights back against, resists the rule of Jesus. So he is ruling, he has all authority, he's seated on the throne in heaven. Um, and so that would describe the present age. It's a, it's a contested rule by the world, but that, their opposition to his rule will soon come to an end, which has not yet happened. Um, and so the amount of the enemy's opposition to Jesus 
framing it in terms of Satan being bound would be a reflection of the fact that Satan is bound. So they're going to resist, they're going to oppose, but only so far as God allows it because Satan is bound during the millennial period. Make sense? Okay, good question. Yeah. What else? Any other things y'all want to ask about? Yeah, Steve. Here it comes. So this this may be more a comment than a question, okay. but um, as, as I hear us talk about, you know, we made a, I think a pretty good case for the for the all meal position and um, how that can really serve us as it ties into other areas of of um, our theology, I guess. But I guess um, if if we say one particular view is is good for our soul, that that kind of implies that other views are, are maybe bad for our soul. So may, maybe we shouldn't think of them as as good or bad for our soul. But as as far as eschatology being good or bad for the soul, but maybe I think I, I kind of go back to the uh, the circle. Yeah. diagram you drew mm-hmm. and it's, it's those first two layers probably that are that are good for our soul the, our soteriology so to speak is what what i would say is good for our soul yeah. eschatology may or may not um be in that category of yeah good or bad for the soul type thing so and, and maybe a question f- to, to help us um kind of see all these different ologies is what are the different ologies and which ones are we going to study in more depth and, and which ones are maybe uh, more uh, helpful for uh, soul care framework type thing? Good. Yep. That's a, that's a very good point, and, it, and it, you're right. It is as we started. Um, so I think it's helpful when we think of the other views and even interacting with views that we don't personally share to find, okay, what are the common denominators here? Um, we all believe that Jesus has power. We all believe that people can still get saved. We all believe Jesus could come back at any time, at a time that we don't know. And we all believe that everybody who's saved one day is going to end up with God in heaven, worshiping Jesus. I mean, so there, there's a lot of common ground, no doubt. And um, just like with any theological system, it can be abused and misused. And so we want to identify the practical benefits of amillennialism, but we're not naive as to think that there are no pitfalls associated with it. Now, somebody with amillennial convictions like me would see the pitfalls and dangers of premillennialism and postmillennialism, and so we've talked about that, but that's not to say or suggest that there are no benefits whatsoever to that system. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good caution and it's a good thing to say, let's, let's put this in its right position. Um, because, yeah, there, there, there are ways to think about some of those systems that are, are helpful and things we can find that we appreciate. I, mean, I think Jan pointed out a couple of times, just even the post-mill position there, there's aspects about that that make us go, there's something in there that's good, that is, is good for our souls. It produces hope in our hearts. I like that. I, that seems biblical. And then on the other hand, we could say, but at the same time, I think on certain, in certain regards, it's going further than the Bible warrants. 
but I'm drawn to and attracted to this aspect of post-millennialism. Um, you know, so just I think that's a charitable and humble way to interact with other views is to find out, okay, what's the redemptive good in this view that I disagree with? And find that, identify that, be appreciative, be respectful of those people. And, um, and, and it's not like, you know, we've said in the beginning, it's not like you have to, you know, share mine and Pastor Billy's Amil convictions to be a member here or even to be in leadership here or anything like that. So we've talked amongst our team. I mean, even our own team is not just 100% on the page, like got the Amil tattoo and we're all, I mean, we're, we're not. You know, we would definitely be that way on like the gospel and the gifts of the spirit and p church polity and doctrine of election, 100%. But as we get out to the outer rings of that circle, it's like, okay, you know, we, we probably have a few little differences on some of these, you know, tertiary matters like eschatology or um, frequency of communion or who gets to take it or how old you should be when you're baptized or how, you know, there's just a lot of like things that are in that outer ring. And so, it, you know, it's good to be okay with the fact that we don't need 100% agreement on all of that. It, it can foster good discussion, actually. Good. Yep. Yep. So for the live stream, he's saying um, it, it's it's actually the fundamental soteriological things at the middle of that circle where we find our greatest joy and comfort and hope, not in getting the eschatology figured out itself that produces hope. Um, so I think the point Pastor Billy was making, maybe you could speak to this a little better. I think the, the point was that the eschatological outer ring is is the logical outflow, we believe, of some of these core things. So taken most logically to its most logical conclusion by reading the Bible in a redemptive historical way has landed reformed people on this Amil thing, but we, would, we don't want to misplace our hope in the, in the eschatological position as though we have as much hope in the figuring out of that position as we do in the gospel itself. That it's the gospel that gives us that hope. And um, other people would say, well, my understanding of the gospel logically leads me towards premillennialism, and, and here's 35 reasons why. And, um, you know, so, you, you know, and then we just have to weigh, okay, as we read the Bible in our own hearts, where do we see consistency, inconsistency, and go with what seems right by a reading of Scripture? So, yeah, yeah. Pastor Billy. No, so I want to. Just so you guys understand something about our leadership and our leadership team and plurality. So Steve just corrected me. Um, and I hope, you know, so I serve as a lead pastor, but we are a plurality of leaders. Steve is an elder candidate. And I hope you guys appreciate the fact that, that we don't have a leadership team that is just a bunch of yes guys um, that, that we'll will question, will ask, will challenge. How did you arrive at that conclusion? You know, those mm -hmm. kind of things. Mm -hmm. So I want you to know that, that this happens uh, a great deal in our seeking to, to pastor you guys well. Um, that it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a lead pastor. I'm just first among equals, meaning that, 
that I'm gonna have to stand before the Lord and I'm gonna get the most blame probably for everything that goes wrong here. But, um, but we're equals in regard to the voice at the table. And um, uh, I'm not the boss of our elder team, you know, as a lead guy. Um, so what you shared was really good. What you shared was really good. A better way for me to have said that and I, I, I think, think you saw me struggling sometimes to have the right words to say. Because I, I don't think we should apologize for the eschatological view that we hold. And I want our church to be able to, here's, here's where I am and why I'm that way. Um, but Steve, I think what I shared in terms of soul care were all gospel-centered positions. Um, I think post-millennial pastors probably could have been, hey, don't take all the credit for that. You know, that's what I would, that's what I believe too. And I think premillennial pastors, um, I think a great deal of what I shared, that they would say yes to the degree that they were gospel-centered. Um, I would just say it's been in my experience that I think those things come to light more readily or, or more quickly in my understanding of a non-millennial view, but that the, the soul care comes from a Christ-centered, gospel-centered view. So I still appreciate you bringing that correction. Um, I'm glad you're in my life, and I hope our church is glad that then, like you, are in our lives as well. So thank you, buddy. Yep. And if, if, if uh, okay, yeah, Jan. So, um, I've been chewing on this for a while. The whole idea of, you referred back to what, what I kind of mentioned last night, but the idea of that the golden age and in the post-millennial view and about the church and believers having a real influence in culture and, I mean, I think that that's happened over, over time, the whole history of man, right? That right. I think so much of the good that's come to mankind in a general... Common grace. Term? Common grace, that's mm -hmm. the term. Um, has come, you know, directly through believers, through right. the church, and that that can continue to happen, and that, again, this so personally, I, I, when, when dabbling in this kind of stuff, this kind of study, I would... In the, in the past, hopefully, it's just in the past, tend to kind of hunker down. Like I said last night, like, oh gosh, it's all just gonna happen and we just gotta sustain ourselves. And, but instead of still having that view that we need to be bold and, and go into the culture and engage the culture and battle in the culture, but in the name of Christ and for the glory of God and not to usher in the golden age of the millennia. And, and probably lots of people in the post millennial view would say yes amen you know that's exactly right. what, but I just I just kept thinking that's been happening you know for 2,000 plus years and you know prior to that I would say that just right. thinking about you know so many medical advancements and scientific advancements came from men and women that were professing not all but professing believers and yeah. and even now thinking of you know people in our country at the highest levels that are professing believers still they're still hanging in there that we still have a call to do that and but yeah it but then practically speaking looking around I'm thinking I don't see how it's we're ever going to just be a Christian world you know yeah yeah so that's the distinction right there yeah because what you're saying uh you know you're right a post mill person would would agree with that 
And um, I think that's why we see um, a, 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 an association of post-millennialism with things like the social justice movement. And so where people would, would tend to think that, some people would believe that the, the mission of the church is to you know, work in the social justice category, that if we're not righting the wrongs of society and standing up for injustice and everything, then we're not being the church because that's the mission of the church. Um, well, that makes sense if the, the big picture mission is to Christianize the world. Well, then, yeah, we should be doing our part to drive back every injustice. So, you know, we would just say, does that, so what do we do with that? What is our role in the category of social justice? We should work to be redemptive instruments in God's hands in the world, definitely, as an expression of gospel advancement, not as a replacement for it, and recognizing that as we do that, the more we step out and shine the light of the gospel, probably the more opposition is going to come our way. And, and we don't want to be overly optimistic to think that if we just do more of that and we do it better, then we'll drive back the darkness and usher in the golden age. So um, it's, it's kind of hinging on what is, what is our expectation. And, uh, and, but an Amil person would definitely um, see the, the importance of the Christian's role to impact society and culture in every sphere that we find ourselves. And we should be doing that as an expression of uh, the kingdom of God advancing, not as a way to stop this from happening, stop the, uh, the decline of culture, and to somehow rescue it from itself and Christianize it. Um, so, yep, that's that. I mean, I, th some of those pitfalls would be you know, on, on the post-mill side, to be overly optimistic, to be giving ourselves to practical social justice, um, trying to restore, you know, kind of the Falwell, Jerry Falwell, like moral majority idea. Like if we can just get that back, then we could have a, a Christianized society, a Christian culture. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, and, and on the other hand, what dispensationalism can lend itself to is just uh, a circle in the wagons and let's, let's hang in, let's stay together, let's be packed and ready because at any moment Jesus is going to call us home. And that can, that can result in some disengagement culturally. And so um, how we view cultural engagement often is a reflection of our underlying eschatological assumptions, even if you never came to a class like this weekender. You know, we're believing certain things anyway, and we, we live out those beliefs in various ways. Yes, yeah, so, so it's a good point. Good point. Lots to think about there. Okay, yes, ma'am. So my question has to do with the second coming, and for the most part, the amillennial uh, view mm -hmm. and what Pastor Billy was talking about, the second coming, um, you know, every knee will bow and some willingly and gladly and praise the Lord, yeah, you're here. And the others will be, you know, in submission to, uh-oh. Yeah. At that point, will non-believers in that moment still have time to repent. Yeah, I, I don't oh. believe so. I believe that that, that second coming is the final closing of, of history. And um, it, will be, it will be too late. There'll be no turning back at that point. So that's why, as Pastor Billy mentioned the verse, today is the day of salvation. Uh, to not wait and delay and to think that, well, as soon as I see Jesus coming on the clouds, well, then... I will repent yeah. and be able to believe um, to not think that that happens because once that happens, 
it's all one event. I don't think there's going to be a time period where folks can change their minds. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, do you mind bringing the mic up here? Thanks. I love your heart because uh, it just, I don't, you don't, you weren't looking in a mirror, but I was looking at your face and um, you asked that question with so much compassion and I want to be more like you in regard to just not wanting to see people perish. Um, so let's tie that back into something that you'd said about, you know, then in our revelation study, you know, we talked about uh, a quarter of the of the earth of the population a third and it gets to be a half remember i used a phrase it's mercy not math so so this i mean it, it this it, uh, you know you you thought you asked when he when he's coming again and and every knee is bowing will there be a chance then um, and we say no, and, and that can maybe just tug at our hearts because we just want, we love people. We don't want to see them perish. But let's remember the countless acts of mercy that God is doing every day. Even the judgments that are happening in our world, you know, just the consequences of sin and all of those things. All of that is the mercy of God. Calling people. Jesus still, in, in Romans, the Bible says that day and night, he's, Jesus says, I, I held out my arms to an, a stubborn and obstinate, rebellious people. But he still was holding out his, and they were nail-scarred nail hands, weren't, weren't they? You know, so, so I, I just want you to be able to be sobered, and, and, and we need to be so that we'll be faithful. That sobriety about that there will be an end of opportunities. That's sobering, but it also is to be mobilizing, you know, in terms of our taking the gospel to across the street or across the sea, you know, whichever one um, that God is calling us to do. But, but to, to be mindful that, that today mercy is flowing like a river to people who don't deserve it and uh, uh, offering them the the uh, invitation for salvation. So, but I, I love your heart. And, yeah, and as Cam, as you're bringing the mic to Tom, I just want to say this. So, not only that, but you know, the the intensification of evil at the end, the tr period of tribulation just before the end. If there's going to be an intensification of tribulation, we'll draw that as a as a dotted line, because I'm not sure if that's a specific period or if it's just a a general, you know, the, the curve just sharpens towards the end. But in intensification of perse persecution and opposition, I also believe that it's also going to be an intensification of salvation. There's going to be an ingathering at the end that while opposition and persecution ramps up, we should expect God to match it, supersede it with an even greater ingathering in the end times. And that... Um, that, that there would be more, um, you know, the picture of the popcorn and the popcorn bag. There would be more pops of revival across the globe and the church strengthening. And, and even though uh, there's an intensification of opposition that we're saying the tribulation, Satan's being loosed, but there's an even intenser 
in gathering of the saints, um, saving of people, revival breaking out just before the end. So I, I do think that that's, that's part of it. Yep. Good. Okay, Tom. Just an observation over last night and today. I come in as a, and I still remain what would be considered more of a pre-trib person, but again, I think my brother said it well, that there's much more similarities in these than there are differences, and Jesus doesn't know when he's coming. And so if he doesn't know, we don't know exactly. I think it's in Thessalonians, it says he's coming for those who hasten his appearing. Mm -hmm. And I've studied that word, and it means literally that long for it, that hunger for it. We're weary, we're tired, and we want righteousness, and we ultimately the only way is when he comes, so we're hungry for it. Let me just read two verses to summarize if I can. Mm -hmm. Our sister said about the two women, I'm going to read the next verse after that, 42 and then jump to 44. Jesus said, watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. 44 says, therefore be ye also ready, for not such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. And boy, that's a sobering scripture right there for me, because I'm not always on guard. I'm not always alert, <laughs> and, and I don't want to miss it. And real quick, I'll summarize it in a sentence. What's come to me in observing this is that I believe it's more of a heart issue than an eye or a mind issue, that where our hearts are posturally is where we need to be. Billy said it well in his closing statement that he wants to prepare people to live for Christ. So whatever moment he comes, we're ready. That's where I want to be. And I want to thank That's you, good. brothers, for, for bringing this. This has helped me. I've been good. encouraged. Good. Thank you for that encouragement. And yeah, that's the picture Jesus gives of uh, having the lamps trimmed and ready. And the, the, the heart posture of the Christian is, as you pointed out, an eager expectation as we long for his appearing. So the book of Revelation is going to close that way. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Should be the cry of the church through all the ages. We long for Jesus to come and return and right all wrongs and eliminate all evil and bring his people home and bring his kingdom in fullness. That's the longing of every Christian's heart. So that's just so good. Good. Thanks for sharing that. Um, anybody else? Any other questions? Yeah, Dave. So I keep looking at your, your lines over here, and I guess I don't really have a question, but just kind of a social observation. But uh, it seems like evil's getting worse, but in the Western world anyway, it seems like church growth is kind of plateaued, like it's a flat line. You know, like you look at Europe nowadays, it's kind of a post-Christian culture, you know. Even in the United States, I guess I'm not seeing a lot of revival or whatnot, and I don't know. I mean, you guys are the professionals seeing how church growth is going these days. But, um, yeah, just wondered yeah, good. about that's, that as I look at your lines there. Yep, that's a, and that's a valid question. So, yeah, thanks for asking that. So missiologists um, have identified patterns over the last 100, 200 years since the modern missions movement. Um, you know, David Brainerd and... Livingston and just uh, particularly William Carey being kind of seen as the father of modern missions. Um, they've identified a trend, and in particular in the 20th century, 
um, of this transition of the activity of God and revival to what they call the global south. So, well, I'm not going to try to draw a globe. I mean, you picture the idea is... Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. God is sovereign right here. Can I write on that with this? Okay. Um, so y'all have heard of the, uh, the 1040 window, right? So this is this period of about right here to about right here. This is a, this is a place in, in the world where there's the most uh, opposition to Christianity and the most intensification of unreached people groups, concentrated areas. All, this is all considered the 1040 window. Um, and then when missiologists talk about the global south, so you take kind of the in-between of that, and that would be the bottom half of that, of that population, that there's the most activity of God in, happening in the global south. So um, there's a book called, I think, The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity, um, that, that really chronicles this from a historical standpoint and looks at it. So it is true that, um, you know, and probably that, the 1040 window doesn't extend into the Western Hemisphere <laughs> in terms of like fierce opposition. Usually when we talk about the 1040 window, it's, it's that area. But uh, I think that's why it, it is true what you're saying, that in the United States and in Europe, there seems to be a diminishing. But that's not because of the, dimin the activity of God in the world has diminished. I just think it's shifted. Whereas in the 1700s and 1800s, we saw the two great awakenings and a concentration of revival activity here. In the present day, we see the concentrations of revival activity here. So um, breaking out in South America and in particular in Africa and then uh, South China and this whole area and all that that's happening there. Interesting that it's also overlaps with the 1040 window, which goes back to the, uh, the other side of the board and that whole thing. <laughs> So, yeah, it's just that we're living in a place where there's not as much of that. But I do believe it is happening. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Um, good. Anybody else? Maybe one more. Time for one more. Yes, sir. Give a little kind of anticipation for our next weekender and what we're going to study there and, and some of these other ology type things that okay. we're going to get into. Yep. Maybe. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So um, is it August that we're looking at? They're still trying to find August, September, sometime around there. We'll do another one and that will be called a pneumatology weekender. And so what we'll look at there, pneumatology is a word that refers to um, the, the study of the Holy Spirit, doctrine and work of the Holy Spirit. So what do we believe about uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, what do we think about the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, um, healing, miracles? Does God still do those things? Um, is he still writing scripture? Is he still giving divine revelation to his people? Did that, did that stop happening once we had the Bible? Does he still reveal himself? Um, and if he does still reveal himself, does that mean we could expect newer books of the Bible to be added over time? Um, and if he is not revealing himself that way, in which sense is he still revealing himself? Um, you know, there's all those questions that revolve around 
um, the gift of prophecy in particular, work of the Holy Spirit. Um, what do we believe about the baptism in the Holy Spirit? If you've grown up in charismatic circles, you've definitely heard that phrase. What do we believe about the baptism in the Holy Spirit? What do we believe about the infilling of the Holy Spirit? What is that event? What does that mean? So um, again, kind of another weekend of looking at topics that are laden with controversy and disagreement and with which Christians very much disagree on uh, in the modern day. But, but nonetheless, things I think would be helpful for us to look at and think about. So that's what's coming. Um, probably a similar format if this worked well. Um, if it didn't, you know, if you have suggestions for how to improve this, pass that on to Eric. <laughs> no, just no Eric, did, Eric has done a great job setting all of this up. So thank you, Eric, for all your hard work. He really worked hard to put all this together. And uh, I just love the food and table displays and just, don't you just feel cared for with all this kind of stuff? Just love that. So, Cam and Aiden being our mic runners. Yep. Yeah, thank y'all. Where is Aiden? Oh, he left, okay, yeah. Yeah, thanks for serving the church. Yeah, that is so significant and we deeply appreciate it, yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah, you, you know, if you want to interact more about this, um, feel free to grab us and talk, talk more. Uh, somebody last night said maybe we could just get together for breakfast or dinner or lunch or something because I just have so many more questions I want to ask. And I was like, yeah, you know, um, I, I'd be happy to try and find time to do that. Um, so well, that's important. Eat, right? You got to eat. So, no, I told him I can, mornings are good for me. So. Anything before 8 a.m., I'm good. You want to meet at 6.15? Let's do it. So uh, lunch is a lot harder, and then evenings are trying to be with the kids and family, so a little bit harder in the evenings. But morning times, you know, if y'all want to get together and talk more about this, I'm happy to do that. And then Christian Beliefs class, June and July. So we'll go through some more theology stuff. So uh, great. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this time and just thank you for this group of folks and their very thoughtful questions and just so thoughtfully engaging with this content. And uh, it's a reflection of how much they care about your word, which is inspiring and provoking. And uh, it's just encouraging to see so many people hungry for your word and handling the Bible and wanting to understand what you have to say about end times and taking time out of their Saturday to be here. Lord, I'm just grateful. I pray that you bless these folks and those who are watching by live stream. And may all of this produce in our hearts a longing that says, Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long to see you. We long to be with you. And we long to take as many people with us as we do. And uh, make, make us missional and make us heavenly minded. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, guys. Thank you very much.